that is really a gift from God, and it seems so much more comfortable and just uh, like a more welcoming space. So congratulations on that. I also want to commend you on uh, giving your pastor the gift of sabbatical. Uh, I survived the pastorate after 40 years. Uh, I served three churches, and the last two churches that I served over 32 years uh, gave me uh, generous sabbaticals, and they were gifts to me. And I want to say you not only are giving a gift to your pastor, but I believe you're giving a gift to the larger church. It is no accident that there are so many churches that have um, fallen, or pastors have fallen, and this rhythm of um, work and rest from Scripture is not only biblical, but I really believe it's practical and even necessary. And so uh, kudos to you for, for doing that. So the series uh, that we're in is the Psalms of Summer. And Pastor Mitch, I believe, uh, chose that for one reason, is that you can have sort of individual weeks that are all put together under an umbrella of the Psalms. And so uh, you have probably already known or probably have already learned just from last week that the Psalms are really the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, The Psalms have been used by God's people for centuries and even millennia. The Psalms uh, really cover all kinds of prayers. In fact, uh, the Psalms are a book of prayer and it really covers all of life. And one of the reasons I think that's so important is because God uses all of our life, every part of our life, to form us into the image of Jesus. And so as you look at the Psalms, it's amazing to me the breadth of experience that they have. For example, some psalms are psalms of worship and psalms of praise. Some are psalms of thanksgiving when God brings deliverance. People give thanks to God for uh, a psalm. Some are just, thank you, God, for providing this or helping me with my enemies. Some psalms are psalms of confession. You know, we don't live our best life every day, and so sometimes confession is necessary, and so there are psalms that cover that. There are psalms that express lament and sadness and even anger towards God. Uh, Psalms really cover uh, the entirety. Uh, Some psalms are psalms just where the psalmist prays for help because he's in trouble. I have a friend who says, um, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm always in trouble, so I always pray. And so some psalms are for prayer. Some are just for liturgy and worship. And so today we're going to look at a psalm, but this psalm is not a psalm. Now that may sound odd to say, but Psalm 1 and 2 are not prayers, but Psalm 1 and 2 are actually an introduction to the psalms. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor for many years, and he translated uh, the Bible in the edition called The Message, calls Psalm 1 the gateway to the Psalms or the doorway that enables us to enter the world of the Psalms. So it's not an actual prayer, this one, but it's really an introduction to the entirety of the book of Psalms. So let's, um, with that said, let's pray before we jump into the Psalms. It's about the middle of your Bible. If you have a Bible, uh, Psalms are just kind of crack it open in the middle and you may land on Psalms. Well, Father, thank you for the opportunity and to the delight uh, to be with this particular group of people on this particular day. 
We thank you, Father, for your creation. We thank you for pulling together the body of Christ to be representatives of Jesus on earth. And Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this congregation. And my prayer, Father, is that there are words today spoken that would land on our heart the way you intended. And so, Father, give us grace, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does, who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the sinner leads to destruction. So the psalm starts by saying that there are two kinds of people. And there are a lot of people that say there are two kinds of people, right? Um, Pet lovers say there are dog people and cat people. Uh, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Um, computer geeks say that there are Mac people and Android people. Golfers say that there are riders and walkers. Some people say that there are two kinds of people, those that think there are two kinds of people and those that don't. Um, this one says really there are two kinds of people. Uh, those who orient their life toward God and those who do not. And yet, if we're really honest, most of us could probably say there are two kinds of people living inside of us. Because there are times when we are gravitating towards God and have sort of a north star that directs us to God, and then times that we resist uh, his spirit. And so one of our tasks, I believe, um, in fact, the New Testament calls that the flesh and the spirit, uh, one of our tasks, I think, as believers is to identify the resistance sometimes that we have to God and then open ourselves open uh, to the Lord. Uh, it also starts with the word blessed. Now, blessed is an interesting word. Uh, it's used a lot in the New Testament as well as the Old. And I think that there are some difficulties with the translation of blessed because some, um, maybe, maybe I won't use this for right now, but I do want to use it for an outline. Some people translate blessed as happy. And I think that's a poor translation because there, you can be happy momentarily for something that's um, maybe fleeting or passing. My wife and I, we just celebrated 48 years of marriage last week. And we went to the restaurant and the uh, waitress knew it was our um, wedding anniversary. So she gave us a free piece of tiramisu, tiramisu pie or cake, and I was happy about that. Uh, but the happiness didn't last a real long time. It was just sort of a fleeting moment of happiness for both my wife and me. I think blessed really talks about a much deeper sense of happiness, uh, a much deeper sense of well-being. Um, the Greek philosophers in the first century made a distinction between happiness and something that they called eudaimonia, 
And uh, it's funny, I looked that word up. Um, I knew that the Greeks used it. I looked it up this week. And eudaimonia actually has made its way into the English language, which I didn't even know that was an English word. But that word really means a sense of um, well-being. Sometimes we use it as a life that's flourishing. Sometimes we use it as a life satisfaction. And so the question is, what is blessedness? What is it that will give us this long-term sense of contentment, of happiness, of flourishing, of resting in God? And uh, there's all kinds of competing ideas as to what that will be. You ask some people and they say, well, if I win the lottery, I'll have eudaimonia or blessedness. And yet you read about a lot of people who win the lottery and a couple of years later, uh, they're not so happy. Some people think if I just have a good portfolio or a good retirement, then I'll be happy. And um, often that's not the case. Way back in 1959, um, Life Magazine did a special edition devoted to leisure and its future in America. And it was from a study by the Research Institute of America. And here are some of the things they said. Now remember, this is way back in the 1950s. By 1975, Americans will have more money and more time to spend it. Technology and industry will make up every American's life safer and easier. Electronic devices will cook our food faster, purify our air, diagnose the weather, and also our health. Amazingly accurate so far. Technology would mean fewer hours of work each week, not so much. Uh, communication via satellites, sophisticated hospital diagnostic machines, <coughs> more and better appliances, even replacing body organs. It's amazing how um, accurate some of that is. But it's interesting because now here we are way later and um, what happened to utopia? We do have uh, better medical care but often fewer have access to it. We have transplants and implants but unanswered ethical dilemmas. We have more and better appliances but are less content. We have more entertainment but less rest. We're running faster with more efficiency, but often we're running in the wrong direction. So what is it to live the good life? And I really believe the good life is a life in relationship to God through Jesus, and that this psalm really identifies some of the marks of a good life. So let, um, let's take a look, and I'm just going to write some of these down. So these are marks of the good life. And the first one I'm going to call healthy relationships. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Um, really what the psalm is saying is blessed is the person who doesn't just walk with the crowd in an unthinking manner. It's what we call in some places a herd mentality or bandwagon effect because a lot of times if we see a lot of people going in one direction, we'll unthinkingly just move along in that direction. 
that's why often we buy things that we don't need. Uh, we often do what others do without thinking. If you go to a restaurant, incidentally, and there's not many people in the restaurant, they'll usually tell, sit you by the window. So everybody thinks it's crowded and more people will come in. Uh, that's the bandwagon effect. And the psalm is saying we really shouldn't just randomly follow that. And there's also a digression. Did you notice that digression? First you walk with the wicked, and then you stand and talk and hang out with uh, those who are unrighteous, and then finally you sit in the company of mockers, and cynicism is sort of the end result of that. And we live in a very cynical world. Whether it's talking about leadership, uh, whether it's talking about sexuality, uh, we live in a very cynical world. And so there's a digression, but a digression downward. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, anybody ever read that? It's a great, great book. Um, it's really an unusual book because it's written from the perspective of a senior demon writing and advising a younger demon on how to tempt his, quote, patient or uh, this Christian man. And one of the things that this senior demon says is it does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge a man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And it's the proverbial uh, frog in boiling water. It just sort of gets worse and worse and you hardly know it and you hardly realize it at the time and then all of a sudden it's, oh my goodness, where did I end up? Uh, blessed people are people who are careful about their close and intimate relationships. That's why I talked to my kids when they were very young about who their friends would be, and you probably did the same thing if you're a parent, because who you sort of hang with is really important. Other people, let me just say this, other people will form your life, either into the image of Jesus or in the opposite direction. And so I'd like to ask you to do for a moment just a, a little bit of relational inventory. And do you have people in your life that are sort of prodding you and encouraging you and modeling for you what it is to walk with Jesus? You know, as I looked at this text, it was kind of interesting to me because I came to Christ in my late teens. And as I sort of reviewed the decades, um, in every decade of my life, I've had people that really were an inspiration to me and modeled for me what it looked like to walk with Jesus. Uh, there was Don and Lois Peterson when I was a 18-year-old um, that really taught me about Christ for the first time, invited us into their home to study scripture and provided a model of what a family was. There was a man at our church, the first church I attended, uh, Jack Connors, who worked with the Navigators, who really encouraged me to study the scripture. There were a couple seminary professors who really modeled what it was to go for academic excellence and also be faithful to God. Uh, Vic Walter, Walter Kaiser, I can think of a couple of them. 
Um, there was Pastor Milo Lundell when I first started out in ministry who was a pastor about 10 or 15 years older than I. And so when I would be in a crisis, I would call him and say, Milo, what's, you know, what do I do? Uh, can you help me out? Uh, and later in pastoral ministry, there was a pastor that really encouraged me to listen to the voice of the Spirit of God, Brad Brinson. Um, and then during 17 years of ministry in Chicago, I had a spiritual director, uh, Bill Creed, who was, um, I met with him every month, and I could just be totally open with him. And so I want to ask you, are there people in your life that are helping you uh, move towards the direction of being formed into the image of Jesus? Um, that's part of what it means to live a good life. Uh, the second one I'm going to call right desire. Some people might call them ordered, uh, ordered affections. And um, the second part, the next part of this passage says, whose delight, isn't that an interesting word? Whose delight is in the law of the Lord? What are the things that you really delight in that make you happy? Uh, That's really a good question. In fact, Jesus often asked people what they wanted. Uh, Our pastor is doing a series on the miracles in the book of John. And Jesus came up to blind, not to blind Bartimaeus, but to the man who was ill at the pool. And he said, what do you want? What do you think the guy said? (laughs) Jesus probably knew what he wanted, right? But it was important for that man to say it. Uh, Blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, Jesus walks up to him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want to see. Again, Jesus probably knew, but it was important Jesus knew for that man to say it out loud. In that same chapter, Mark chapter 10, it's interesting, Jesus asks, I think it's Peter and James, what they want. And they said, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. They wanted power and accolades. So what that tells me is that every desire that you have or that I have is real. I mean, if we desire, it's really real. But not every desire really represents our deepest self. Uh, I was playing golf this past week with my grandson, and he just turned 16, got his first car, and he's really getting into cars. And so he asked me, um, Papu, if you could have any car what car would you want? So I kind of flipped through the Rolodex of cars because I love cars. Uh, Especially I love old cars. Uh, And I've got an old car. But I said, you know, probably an old, like from the 70s, Porsche 911. And uh, that's a desire. But it's not a desire that will satisfy my deepest longings. And so the question is, What is it that you really delight in? What is it that you really want? And really, my deepest desire is not for a Porsche 911. It has more to do with knowing God, uh, leading my family towards him, being open to his spirit, being uh, willing to go where he wants me to go. I mean, those are the things that deep down... um, that I I really long for. And it says, 
whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, so the delight, you think of the law of the Lord and delighting in it. What does it mean to delight in it? Uh, my daughter's boyfriend is a sommelier. Now, you may not know what that is because I didn't know when she first told me. But a sommelier is basically a wine expert. And so the first time I met this guy, he was um, doing his wine thing and talking about how wine tasted and how you should see it, swirl it, sip it, savor it, and just sort of take time with one glass of wine. And that's sort of the picture here, really taking time with it. As opposed to a man, I looked up in the Guinness Book of World Records about the person who could eat the fastest. The record is 64 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. That's pretty amazing. How, how is it that you approach scripture? Um, do you sort of read? Because I can read to just check off the list. Okay, I'm going to read this passage and I'll just check it off the list. Or really allow it uh, to penetrate my soul. What do you want God to do for you? Sometimes um, I'll give a exercise to people that I do spiritual direction for and maybe I've talked to some of you about it when I talked about listening to the voice of God I'm not sure but in Mark chapter 10 uh, is where Jesus meets blind Bartimaeus and sometimes I'll ask people to spend a lot of time with that particular passage and even do something called um, Lexio Divina where it's a, just a big name for trying to place yourself in the midst of the passage and then imagine Jesus asking you, what do you want me to do for you? And it might be good to clarify around that because you'll often find that your deepest desires are what drive you in life. So um, a well-ordered well ordered desires, the right desires. And the um, third one, I forgot how I worded it is um, they cultivate their thought life. All of us, um, if we're honest, will admit to having sort of a running dialogue in our head. You know, uh, just things that speak to us. Some of th those things I think are just from our own soul. Uh, some of us are, some of it is from the Spirit of God. Some of it, I think, is from the evil one. And so this says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And there's an interesting word for law here. Uh, law is kind of that word that talks about an arrow going towards its, its target, a Torah. It's an arrow going towards its target. And the picture here is that God's word is the arrow and our hearts are the target. And what God's intention is, is to have words go from the pages of this book and have them land in our heart, or what I would call the center of our soul, which will impact um, what we're thinking about. Psalm 63, 6, On my bed I will remember you. I will think of you through the watches of the night. What's the first thought you have 
when you get out of bed. Sometimes it might be, what's on Facebook? Did anybody read my post? Um, one of the things I've tried to do in the last few years is um, try to make my first thoughts really um, addressed to God. And it might be reciting <coughs> Psalm 23, Psalm 1, um, Sermon on the Mount, um, the Lord's Prayer, but really sort of begin with um, a focus on God's Word. And so I want to give you a challenge this morning, and the challenge is this. As you go through the Psalms, if you're, if you're not already in some kind of Bible reading program, I want to encourage you to just read the Psalms for at least five minutes a day. Uh, some of you might choose to read a Psalm a day. Uh, it might get a little bit difficult when you get to Psalm 119, but uh, uh, you might read one Psalm a day, or you might say, I'm going to read five minutes a day. But to really have the Word of God start reorienting your thinking, because it really does, really does make a difference. Uh, and I'll tell you, in, and this is something that's repeated throughout the scriptures, uh, I'm going to read for you from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because what you think about really will determine the quality of your life. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I can guarantee you, if you start changing your thinking and molding it towards the Word of God, uh, your life will change and you will have more peace. So number three is cultivating thought life. Number four... Uh, those who are living the good life, and I love this image, are stable and productive or fruitful. He will be, or she will be, or they will be, like a tree planted by streams of water. Um, I love trees. When my wife and I, when we moved to um, the Lake Geneva area, we decided we didn't, uh, we wanted to live in a place where there's just a lot of trees around us because they do represent stability to me. And when the Psalms were being collected and formed into a single book, um, the Israelites were in a place they did not want to be. They were in Babylon. They were captive in Babylon. And Babylon is um, kind of a desert. But there's a river in Babylon. And if you've ever seen, ever, ever seen these pictures where you're looking at a desert and then there's a river in the desert and everything that is green along where the river is, uh, that's the picture here. Because the people were in Babylon and they were singing the Babylonian blues. Lord, how can we prosper in Babylon? We are in a country and in a city that is godless. How do we prosper? And there's this picture then 
of the tree. And the question is, stability comes not sort of when everything's going well, but stability comes in the midst of a difficult life. I was talking to a, a doctor recently, and he was having sort of trouble just focusing on his practice and his patients, and he to, you know, told me he wanted to be a missionary. And one of the things I said is, you know, God works in our life in our real life, not in the life we would like to have. Because a lot of us spend an awful lot of time thinking what it would be like if we had a different life. If I had a different job, if I had a different wife or husband, if I had different children, if I lived in a different place. And a lot of us are not living our real life, but somehow we allow ourselves to imagine a different life and we try to live that life. But the only place where God can actually bless you is in your real life. And so this idea of stability comes when things are unstable around us. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount this way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because its foundation was on a rock. And that's the picture, stability. And when you live this good life in relationship with Jesus, and you're careful about your relationships and your desires and your thought life, and you will be stable. You will be grounded is the word we use today. But it's interesting because not only will you be stable, but you'll be fruitful. You'll be productive. And that's almost like two things in tension, right? It's like the person who says, I love progress, but I hate change. Um, this is being rooted well in Christ and at the same time allowing yourself to change, not becoming um, calcified, but being open to new ideas, to, to the scripture, to ways that God wants to speak and you'll yield fruit. You'll begin to grow the fruit of the Spirit. So you'll be stable and productive. And then finally, a lot of people say usually when the pastor says finally, <laughs> he's got like way a long time to go. But we'll try to wrap it up here. Finally, um, what's the last one? Yeah, oh, here it is, yeah. He'll have a secure future. Now, this is interesting because when you look at this, these four talk about life right now, what your life is going to be now. The kingdom of God is here among us, with us in Jesus. This one is talking about, in a sense, the kingdom to come. And one of the reasons I find, for me, these four are so important, because I became a Christian in a culture that basically said Christianity is fire insurance. Uh, you believe God, and you believe in Jesus, so you don't go to hell when you die. And, and sort of there was little thought about what's going on now, but what's going to happen later. But there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that, because when we are in Christ, we are saved, <laughs> past tense, we are being saved, present tense, 
and we will be saved. Future tense. Uh, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. You ever, some of you might be farmers. You ever see chaff? Um, chaff was a new thing to me. I was from the city. But um, chaff is like nothing. Uh, another good book by C.S. Lewis, incidentally, is The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis was so creative, it's amazing to me. He wrote a book about people in hell who took a bus trip to heaven. This is not a true story, by the way. Um, <laughs> they took a bus trip to heaven. And the irony was, when they got to heaven, they didn't want to be there. And you say, well, why would that be? Because you know who the chief resident of heaven is? It's God. And if you don't learn to fall in love with God now, uh, heaven is going to be a pretty uncomfortable place. But if you are loving God and living with God now, heaven is going to be wonderful. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There will be a final day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You know, a lot of people say the Christian life is hard. You know what's really hard? The non-Christian life. Because that leads to destruction. So my question that I want to close with, and this time I really do mean I'll close, um, where are you looking for happiness? Is it in the immediate, the short term, the uh, tiramisu cake, or is it rooted in God through Christ? And the irony is when we look for happiness sort of with the immediate, we'll never find it. But if we look for God, happiness, contentment, blessedness, flourishing will come with it. So um, that's our beginning to the book of Psalms. That's our gateway in. Uh, next week we'll look at Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm. And then the one probably that's not so familiar except for the last two verses is Psalm 139. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word which enlivens us which when it arrow reaches our heart brings change and transformation. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue your process of transformation in each of our lives as we follow Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for what he's done for us, past, present, and future. Amen.